Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord and those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. We are in the Gospel of Mark chapter 11 and if you have your Bibles, please open to chapter 11. We will stand in a moment and read verses 1 through 11. Would you stand please for the reading of God's word. Now, when, he, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosening the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Please be seated. The day of selection, we know it as Palm Sunday. And here we have the story, of course, of Christ coming to Jerusalem. The disciples are always a part of the picture of his ministry and a very important part. We have the crowds, we have the man who owned the cult, we have the cult itself, and then we have what was going on in Jerusalem. And it is Sunday in ancient Israel on this day when the sacrificial animals for the Passover were selected by the head of the household, the men of the household. They were selected four days before the sacrifice. They'd be set aside and observed to make sure there were no defects with them before they were Offered up to God. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, Moses told the people, Speak to the congregation of Israel, God, of course, speaking to Moses to tell the people, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Now, the tenth was four days before the fourteenth, obviously, which was the day of Passover, the fourteenth of Nisan. And so, it is the day when the Passover lamb would be selected. And Jesus, of course, is the Passover lamb selected by the Father. And hopefully I can bring that out as we move forward. Verse 1 now. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Uh, The two villages named here are close to one another. Bethany means the house of dates. It's not where you go to find someone to go out with for the night. Of course, it is the date palms are there. And uh, Bethphage means the house of unripe figs. Uh, You know, they didn't put too much on the names after they were named. We do. I mean... It's interesting they would name a place that, a place of unripe figs. doesn't sound very appealing. But Bethphage was the larger of the two. Bethany is where the disciples will find the colt. Jesus had dear friends in, in Bethany, and we'll come to that towards the end of this morning's consideration. But the Mount of Olives, this two-mile-long ridge on the east side of uh, Jerusalem, forming that eastern border of Jerusalem. It's about 300 feet higher in elevation. So you have a clear view of the city of Jerusalem to this day. You stand at the Mount of Olives, you can see the, the Temple Mount, you can see the Dome of the Rock. 
Interesting thing about the Dome of the Rock. We know it doesn't belong there. But God put it there to keep Jerusalem from being bombed. And from other reasons, the wisdom of God, things that are just not comfortable for us have a meaning with him. Well, that's a side note, but you can see the city and the many olive groves that used to be there, thus the name the Mount of Olives. It is where Jesus was betrayed and arrested and where Peter swung his sword and hacked off the ear of Malchus. When Christ returns... His feet will touch down upon the Mount of Olives, a very significant place in the scripture and in history to come. Zechariah 14, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. We, will, we who believe will be there to see that. And uh, I'm very excited. Please don't get in my way. I want a clear view of this going on. Anyway, it is also the exact point where he ascended into heaven uh, from this Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 1, the angels speaking to the disciples, verse 11, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? <laughs> You've got work to do. You're looking up in heaven. And this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And so the Mount of Olives, a very special uh, place for us who believe. Uh, verse 2, And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt, on which no one has sat, loose it and bring it. It is specifically stated that no man has ever been on this animal. And it is, uh, if it had been, it would have been unfit for service. Because the Jews regarded animals that had never been ridden particularly suited for holy purposes. And this one, again, no one had ever sat on it before. And yet it will perform as though it were well-trained once the master gets his hands on it. Verse 3, And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. Well, evidently, this was a prearranged meeting. Jesus did a lot of work in Bethany and stayed there often. And at some point, who knows, he may have healed this person or someone in their family. And he said, I'm going to need a donkey. I'd like you to supply it. And here's what I'd like to do. And here's when. And, here's, and, and, and there, here we have it acted out. And so he bestowed on this man. When he says here, immediately he will send it. There were others involved, but someone was the, the boss. And that person has the unique and the priceless privilege of ministering to the master with his donkey like nobody else. He has a share in the fulfillment of prophecy because this is prophetic. The Lord, again, through Zechariah, called this out. We'll get to that Zechariah 9 quotation uh, in the end of the, of the section of this morning's consideration. But this man forever has a place in the story. He participated, even though he doesn't seem to have gone to the parade. There are lessons all over that. Um, it, um, uh, we move verse 4 now. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to him, What are you doing loosening the colt? And they spoke to them, just as Jesus commanded. So they let them go. Another interesting point is Jesus, as often as he could, he'd send out his disciples in twos. Uh, we go into that in other sections of the scripture, but he sent two of them this day to uh, get the colt. And as he said, it happened. It was all anticipated. And just the authority of Christ and his word and, and the readiness of those to submit to what he had to say. But there are some facts concerning this little animal that are quite interesting from the scripture. And I think 
that they minister to us. That donkey had to be redeemed when it was born. The law commanded the firstborn donkey to be redeemed by a lamb, or its neck was to be broken. Sacrifice to the Lord, or suffer the loss. Exodus chapter 13, but every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. Well, the owner says, I'm not going to break that. I need the donkey. I will, I will, you know, redeem it. I will pay the price. But it's so, it's sort of out of place. All of a sudden, there's this donkey in the Old Testament, Exodus, getting this attention in connection with the lamb. And then when we come to this section, it's an easy connection. We can understand it. This little donkey was born under the sentence of death. Redeem him or kill him. And redeem him with a lamb. Either the donkey had to die or the lamb had to die. Which would it be? And it was redeemed. This donkey was redeemed and it was ready to serve. But while it was redeemed, it had life. It was tied to a post. That's pretty interesting too because it had life but it did not have liberty. It needed to be released if it was going to serve. Before it could bear the weight of the Lord on it, it needed the Lord's commandments. It needed the freedom to do so. That donkey would then be ruled by the Lord, as we will see it happen. It was not free to run off and gallop and do whatever it wanted to do simply because it was redeemed. It was tied and it was preserved. And it was used at his word. And I look at this story and I think if that donkey can serve the Lord, I can serve the Lord. If that donkey can submit to the Lord, I can submit to the Lord. If the Lord can redeem the donkey, the Lord can redeem me. There's so many meanings that belong to this little moment in history. And once that donkey was brought into obedience to Christ... It was able to serve him. Isaiah says this interesting thing in Isaiah chapter 1. He says, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. So the prophet is saying, Dumb animals, they understand their master. What is your problem as people who are supposed to be far more intelligent, far more capable? And so this little donkey, and the story that goes with it, illustrates God's law of liberty, freedoms to be a servant of God. We are free to be his slaves. And we should not be intimidated by that word because of what men have done to other men. We should understand that we are bondservants of Christ. We are willing slaves of Jesus Christ. Uh, that is a special category. Verse 7, Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. So you see the attention and the care that he is, he is getting in the presence of, of, of this multitude. And Christ is now going to uh, mount this colt. And that provides a picture of humility for us because as he's riding on this little donkey, his feet are somewhat scraping the ground. He's not riding in like a general on a steed. Uh, this is a, a picture of humility. He's saying, I could wipe this place out. That's not what he came for. The Son of Man came to seek and to serve those who are lost, which is mankind. All eyes are on Jesus. And the donkey is a part of that. And they're watching him as he's riding in. Again, if the donkey can serve the Lord, so can I. What, there is no, not much of an excuse that remains for Christians to not be involved. And that little donkey carrying the Christ of God into the city, amid the crowd, the multitudes, the hosannas, the excitement. And he seems to be just such a cool, calm figure, just plodding along, carrying the Lord, delivered from death by the Lamb, and free to be his servant. Verse 8 
And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's why most of these are date palms and the palm branches put on the road there. We call it Palm Sunday. This is, as I mentioned, a Sunday. Uh, even in the days of, the, of Israel's kings, they, they did such things. Second Kings chapter 9, Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him, on the top of the steps, and they blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. Well, Jehu turned out to be a rotten king, but he drove his chariot in a very fierce way. But my point is that this was a custom of announcing uh, that uh, this is the king. And uh, Jesus is doing just this. He had suppressed his messianic ministry. Now he's publicly declaring it. In verse 8, and many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Uh, again, as they did in the days of the king, and the Lord is making his public ministry known to everyone, as, as I just mentioned, his messianic ministry. This is, this is important. This is vital to the story. He had held it back while he ministered. As hard as, as it is to believe in Christ, uh, even after you become a believer, there are things that will try to get us to doubt him or to doubt parts of him, to accept parts of his word and doubt other parts of his word. How much more difficult would it have been to doubt Christ if he did no miracles? But the fact that he did so many of them attracts us, strengthens our faith. Uh, were, there are countless miracles just by uh, knowing the future, telling the future, the lessons he taught, the people he healed, the walking on the water, which was really a delicate touch. It was outstanding. And many of these people had witnessed these things take place. In fact, these Jews that are yelling Hosanna are primarily the Galilean Jews, not the Jerusalem Jews, which becomes a problem when the church is established in the book of Acts because you had the Hellenistic Jews that were influenced by the Grecian culture and then you had the, the Jerusalem Jews that were, you know, they spoke the Hebrew and they looked down, some, many of them, on anyone who did not and it became sort of a, a grounds... Uh, for Satan to create a clash between the believers. But the apostles dealt with it uh, then in those days as the ministers have to deal with such classes, clashes to this day. But this is his official entry into Jerusalem as the son of David, publicly declaring himself, I am the king. It's going to create a lot of twists and turns in the minds of those who are going to observe his entry his teachings in Jerusalem, his betrayal, and his crucifixion. And just like today, there are things that Jesus allows to happen that create a condition for me to have to struggle through and trust by faith according to his word. The apostles had to trust him according to his words. He said he would die and rise again. They had to be a part of that experience. Bartimaeus... Blind Bartimaeus, in the last chapter, he called it out loud. He identified Christ as the rightful heir to David's throne. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That son of David was saying he's in the line of, of the king. This is Messiah. Verse 9, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. That's that covenant name of Yahweh between the Jews and, and God. Hosanna, this comes from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. It became a cry of joy and blessing to say Hosanna, which as, as they are using it here, and they're using it in the proper context, but they really don't go far enough. And we'll get to see that in a moment. How is this crowd going to feel four days from now when Christ is going to be on the cross? Perplexed? Brokenhearted? For sure. 
But they will not be the ones that will be shouting, crucify him. That will be a different group. Uh, These are pilgrims. They're coming for the Passover feast, primarily from the east, route from Capernaum, this region of the Sea of Galilee. And they have these expectations that Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecies as Messiah. He is. They did not understand it would be two parts to this fulfillment. And so uh, this time he comes as a spiritual deliverer, lowly, riding on a donkey. Next time he comes as a conquering hero on a war horse. And that's why when we read this in Revelation chapter 19, we like it very much. Revelation 19 verse 11. I saw a heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then it continues down verse 14. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That will be us, the believers. I have some questions still about heaven. For instance, will we be ticklish? So important, right? Well, it is if you don't like to be tickled. It continues here about this army. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on the thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the same Jesus that is riding into Jerusalem on that faraway day on a donkey. He is returning and he will be on a horse. Paul tells us what then happens. 1 Corinthians 15, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God to to God the Father. Let me reread that. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. No more politicians. Man, that that alone makes it heaven appealing just that much. As I mentioned, within four days, another crowd will be howling, but it will not be Hosanna. It will be crucify him. And that I said, these were the Galilean Jews coming to the Passover. John, who is writing about this very moment in the 12th chapter, says, Then, pardon me, the next day a great multitude had come to the feast. Those are the pilgrims coming to the Passover. The men were required to come to Jerusalem for this celebration. All the male Jews were required to come to Jerusalem. And, of course, many would bring their families. And so this was a big crowd, a lot of people there. It continues in John 12. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh, the King of Israel. And so what John, why I'm quoting John is because I'm pointing out that, again, there are two crowds that will be crying out within these four days. The Galileans, who enjoyed so many of his miracles, and the Jerusalem Jews, who did not joy, enjoy as many because of the, the leadership in Jerusalem, because they were so hostile to him. Uh, Matthew chapter 21, 10. <clears throat> and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Well, the Galilean Jews didn't have to ask that question. They knew who Christ was. That's why they're cutting down the palm branches and laying it before him and cheering him on. But the Jerusalem Jews did not know, most of them great multitude of them. And they're the ones that are making that inquiry, and Matthew picks it up. Thanks again to the leaders who made Jerusalem a hostile place where Jesus could not function as he could function further to the north. John's Gospel 11. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. There's that hostility that I was mentioning, why he ministered so much in other areas. 
And so our eyes, as we look at this event, our eyes are on Him, on Christ. We hear their praise, but we see Him marching toward death and life for us. He has no reason to do this but for sinners. There is no motivation in the universe as to why God would send His Son to suffer such things except to redeem, to purchase back sinners. And by definition, people that aren't very appealing. We may be appealing, have things about us that are appealing to each other. Give it time. Go on a trip with somebody for a week. By day five, you're looking to, maybe by day two, depending on your personality, <laughs> you're looking for relief. Otherwise, you could just say, this is a wonderful person, wonderful relationships, because we're sinners. We're messed up. And God knows it. And he doesn't give up on us. And that tells us we're supposed to do some of that to others, too. We're not supposed to give up on other people just because they're not behaving, playing properly in life. Uh, there are, we know these things. And we are devoted, we who believe, to improving our performance as Christians. Uh, we, we, that's what conviction is. Conviction says, you know, you got that one wrong. And the heart responds, I know. And I want to get it right. Just working on it. Everything it doesn't come right away. So God, please be patient with me. To which God says, okay, but I want you to be patient with others. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Again, the words of the blind man. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He knew he could go to him for mercy. And he received it. And you know you can go to him for mercy. The question is, can people come to you for mercy? Sometimes people, of course, want to abuse the mercy. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about those who are honest and genuine. Someone from David's line was expected to take the throne and to restore Israel to God's king. The people believed this. They believed that much of the scripture for sure. There were other areas of scripture that they were very confused about. And most of it because of the rabbis. Hosanna in the highest. This highest that he is referring to here, or the, as the people are quoting Psalm 118, refers to the heavens and the inhabitants, the Lord of hosts, of those on earth, of those in heaven. And Psalm 148 uh, defines that for us, tells us just that. But uh, the, they don't go far enough with the Psalm 118. And here's why. They stop here with the Hosanna. But if they continue to the next verse, they stop at verse 26 in Psalm 118. But here's Psalm 118, verse 27. God is Yahweh, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Tie it in so it can't get away. If possible, Lord, Father, take this cup from me. Well, it was not possible. The sacrifice was bound to the altar. There was no escape. It was the point of no return. For this purpose he came, Jesus said. And how I wish it was on right now. He met it eagerly in spite of the horrors. Now, the men who bound the sacrifices to be slaughtered. You know, you'd bring your animal there, there to the altar, and while they were busy with other things, they'd tie it up, and they couldn't have a bunch of animals roaming around the, the temple ground. <clears throat> Men use cords, ropes, but God uses love. It's much different. It gets us involved, does it not? When God says, this is how you'll know that you're my disciple, that you love one another, he gets us involved. He ties us to the altar. Of course, Christ is the sacrifice. and He's bound to the cross. 
There's nothing that's going to stop this. Verse 11. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Judas is still in that number. He's still a servant. He's still perceived as a servant. When the crowd saw the twelve, they saw Judas too. And they had as much admiration for his position and him in that position as they did for any of the others. This uh, word here for temple in the Greek, again, verse 11, and Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. It is uh, herion, not naos. There's two words that are used for the temple. The outer courts, herion. That's the precincts, the outer courts. He does not go into the sanctuary. Later, in chapter chapter 14, that will be brought up. And again in chapter 15. They said he would destroy this temple and raise it in three days. A different Greek word. I hope I'm not losing you on that. My point is, he goes into the temple. He's not going into the sanctuary itself of the temple, but the temple grounds. And that's what uh, Mark is telling us. He went to the temple grounds and he looked around at what was going on. It wasn't closed. The people were there. The evening sacrifices would have been offered this time. He got a full eyes view of how they were doing church. Those churchgoers, were they abiding by God's word or were they doing their own thing? So when he had looked around at all things, he surveyed the area and he disliked what he saw. We'll get that in verses 15 and 17 next session. He'll be back the next day, and he will address what he is looking at this evening. He he had the whole night to sleep on it. Well, he knew already. But the message that comes out of him, the Holy Spirit says, Your master looked around at all things and pondered it through the night. He wakes up fresh in the morning, and he comes to deal with this. He had an intolerant spirit. For phony baloney ministry. Unfortunately, there are many Christians who have high tolerances for phony baloney ministry. Just put another $10 in the offering plate and God will bless you. That's phony baloney stuff. What business is it of any pastor how much you give? That is between you and God. That is a sacred act. And Christians know what they're supposed to give, so don't go acting like you know well, how much. And sometimes it's more and sometimes it's less. You should be tuned into the spirit. It should be almost a no-brainer because it's a spiritual issue. And, uh, you know, there are times God puts something on your heart. Act on it. That's how you develop being led by the spirit of God. Being led by the spirit of God is not a one-way street where God is doing all the leading and we're just shuffling along. It comes with a still small voice here, a stronger voice there. But God is paying attention. Are you listening or you're not? If I've asked you to do something and you don't do it, why should I ask you again to do something? But when you begin to say, I think that's the Lord. I'm going to pursue it. I'm not going to act yet, but I'm going to confirm it. Now you're developing a relationship. Many times, God says, sit there and don't do anything for a long time while everybody else is pushing you to do something. No, you have to learn how to be led. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Paul knew what he was talking about. This was a man, Paul, that was led into places where he was beat up for God leading him there. And instead of complaining about why, I thought you said you'd never leave me or forsake me. He'd get up and do it again. He knew this was God. He knew he got the gospel out. That was his mission. His objective was accomplished. Me, I'd be saying, where was the protection? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I got some wants here. You get tired of getting your heart broken or your head beaten. Not Paul. He never got tired of it. For Christ. Oh, he didn't like it. Did not invite it. Did not directly provoke it. But he did indirectly provoke it. And he was fine with that. If I preach in this place, they might give me a beating. Okay. Then let them give me a beating. I mean, after they stoned him, he got up and went back into the city where, they, where the people came out and stoned him. 
remarkable, always keeping the standard high. Whenever we complain, and when I complain to God, I know I'm out of bounds to some degree. I know he expects it. I know he says, go ahead, have your say, get your little cry out. And then when you get up, I need you to go do what you know, what you're supposed to do, whether you like it or not. Many of the assignments of God to his servants are, are not things we like. So who needs him if we just did everything we liked? And uh, unfortunately, many Christians never get to find out because they never serve publicly. They just serve in the home. That's not enough. It's not enough. If every Christian did that, what would happen? The world would be worse off. God wants to get us out of our comfort zones when we are in a zone where we should not be. Not just for the sake of getting us out of our comfort zone. Um, anyway, uh, this is ministry. And every Christian should know it. We are left here for a reason. That donkey was useful. And so am I. But I don't have to be. I don't have to be useful to God. I have a say-so in this. I can turn my nose up to serving. I can say my, my priorities. I'm not trying to stir you up to serve. I'm just saying what I feel the Lord is telling me to say to you right now. Maybe there's somebody who can benefit from this. Maybe not. Not my decision. I know this, every Christian should be eager to serve and ready to take hits. And when your little heart gets broken, broken, serving in the church, don't go fleeing, retreating, running out. I'm going to another church. Stop that. Stop making it easy for Satan to walk over the church. They do it like that. And stick around for years and hear one little thing they didn't care for, and they have traded, and they've wasted the investment that God has given it ain't going to stop with me saying it, but it may be arrested in the life of some individual. A lot of men before me have been very... D.L. Moody was very frustrated with how Christians served, but he never gave up, and neither are we. So when he looked around at all things, he surveyed, and this unannounced visit of the Lord God, as he was, is a sudden appearance in this sense. He suddenly appeared as king. Oh, he had been here before. He was here when he was 12 years old, and he just baffled everybody with how much he knew. But this time, he's coming as Malachi the prophet clearly said. He is coming as the Lord. Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger. That's John the Baptist. And he will prepare the way before me. That's God, the Son. And the Lord whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. That relationship of God, Yahweh, and Christ is so tightly woven in the prophecies that you can't always tell one from the other because that's what the Trinity is. So woven together, so perfectly joined he is the Passover lamb of God, and he has four days to live, four days till death, and he knows it. He's not confused about any of it. The apostles don't get it, but he gets it. God does not have to have us understand what he is doing to do what he is doing. He tries to get us there. But we, all, we don't always keep up because it may be distasteful to us. But what overrules is our commitment to him through the Holy Spirit. This day of selection, when God supplies himself the lamb. Isaac asked, where is the lamb? Here's the wood. Here's the fire. There's the altar. What are you going to sacrifice? You. Genesis 22. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. That's how Abraham handled that. Abraham was convinced that if he sacrificed his kid, God would raise him again. It didn't go that far. It was never God's intention to have Isaac harmed. It was God's intention to expose Abraham's faith all the generations to come. 
The fullest answer came centuries later from the lips of John the Baptist. When Isaac said, where is the lamb? John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, you see, picture it now. There's John baptizing. Hundreds of people he had baptized. He looks up and he sees Jesus coming. This one is outstanding, separate from the others. And it's sort of just involuntary almost. It just comes right out of John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You never get tired of it. That never gets old. He takes away my sin from me. And your sin from you if you let him. That's what makes this the day of selection. While men were selecting their lambs, God had chosen his and was now revealing him. He was separating his lamb. For four days, everyone could observe him to see if there was some spot, some blemish, some defect, something that made him unworthy to bring before God. They could not find it. This is Sunday sunset. Now four days before the cross, which I believe is a Thursday. Else you can't have the day of selection match the, the time frame. Of, and then the three days and three nights that the Lord would spend uh, in before his resurrection. I believe in a literal three days and a literal three nights, not portions of. So, uh, or fi- not figuratively, figuratively. Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. This is that lamb that he said separate in four days. Exodus 12. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, their instructions, what sticks out to us, is without blemish. See, that's why the money changers were ripping the people off. You'd bring your lamb, it would have no blemish. They'd make one up. Oh, look at that. You can't have that. Well, they all have that. But you couldn't protest with these guys. They had all the authority. They'd say, we'll take your lamb, but you've got to buy a new one. And that's what Jesus went and flipped tables over on these people for cheating the people, making merchandise of them over religion. It wasn't as though they were selling them things uh, uh, that uh, was useful. They were forcing them, extorting them. Hebrews chapter 9, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If your conscience weren't able to be cleansed from dead works through Jesus Christ, how could you ever serve him? You'd be too much, it'd be too much guilt. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. And Satan spends a lot of time saying, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Don't believe it. Putting some doubt in your head when things don't go your way. Doubt God. It's so easy to do. Everybody's doing it. Just get in line. And the Christian will have none of that. Christian will say, I don't, I'm not going to doubt. As confused as I am, I'm not doubting. That's that. What else you got? 1 Peter chapter 1. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. These are, inten- the, the, the language is intentional. It is connected. 2 Peter chapter 3. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in In him, in peace, without spot and blameless. In other words, Christ-like. We are to be Christ-like. You say we can't get there. No, but how much better off will everyone be for us trying to get there? He says here at verse 11, As the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Each night, he'd go back to Bethany, the suburb. He would not stay in Jerusalem. Too hostile there. But there he had friends. There was Martha and her sister Mary. Mary who sat under the word. And Martha who said, look, I need her to work. Never mind the Bible study. And Jesus said, nope. (laughs) Mary has chosen that good thing. And it will not be taken from her. You are a little lazy, Mary, though he whispered to her. But I I just happen to know that. (laughs) It is... It is kind of frustrating when people do try to hide from their responsibilities using the Bible to do it. But that's not what was going on. It was Martha, Mary, Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, their brother. 
There was Simon the leper. I find an interesting character. He's a leper no more, but the name stuck with him as a monument to Christ, no doubt. And then there were those who loaned him the colt. That man in particular, when he said, he will give it to you, the owner. Somebody owned that little donkey. What happened to the donkey? Doubtless, the Lord passed him off to a caretaker. Take him back. There's no way he would neglect such a deed. We wouldn't find it to be a noble trait in ourselves or someone else. And so we're not going to put it on the Lord. David, when he came to the battlefield... Well, was supposed to be a battlefield, but it really wasn't working as one. Goliath would come out every day and hurl insults at the Jews and their army. And they challenged him, his brother, what did you do with those sheep? Well, I left them with the caretaker. Well, it was a noble thing, so much so the Holy Spirit preserved it. And we're not to come to the New Testament and to think... That for one minute, it was an oversight of God. He just let the donkey wander away or somebody steal it. He took care of all things. The Romans, at this time, at this day of selection, they took no care for these things. His entry into Jerusalem. Not until he cleanses the temple does he stir up a little bit more trouble. The religious leaders got a little insulted with him. You know, the people crying out. He said, stop him. And he said, the rocks will cry out if they don't recognize this moment, a fulfillment of Zechariah 14, the Romans would say, what king rides a donkey? He can't be a king. He can't be a threat. Had he rode in on a steed, he would have been a threat. God, again, doing things the right way, whether we understand it or not. We do understand this. Again, the Romans would have rallied up, arrested him. How dare you come into Jerusalem prancing on some stallion, acting like you're the king. All the people behind you would have been taken as an uprising. He flies beneath the radar, but he flies nonetheless. And Zechariah calls it over 400 years before it happened. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. And there we saw them shouting, Hosanna. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I, I happen to think donkeys are so cute. Those are mammoth ones are a little spooky, but they, they're big. But the other ones, they, they're kind of cute. Anyway, here, Zechariah. So the Jews had this great expectation, and the day came. Well, the church has a great expectation, too. We have an expectation of his return for us. Not when he puts his feet on uh, the Mount of Olives. We expect that too. But, that, but, but before that comes the call of the church home. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him. And that they had done these things to him. Again, John 12 is this is set here, chronologically, is happening right now. And so when John writes what I just read, he is saying the disciples did not really understand the shouting of the people, the prophecies of Zechariah and Malachi, but they figured it out later because the Spirit revealed it to them. Matthew, again, 21.10. And when he had come into Jerusalem... All the city was moved. That word moved in the, he, in the Greek is seismic. We get our word seismic. It was, it just, she shook the city when he came. He continues saying, who is this? It's a pretty good question. And God answers the question. And the people would have had to answer the question. The Galileans would have said, this is Jesus who's cleansed the lepers, who's taught, who put the rabbis in their place, who did this and did that. Just like we're supposed to do when someone wants to know something about Jesus. Or if someone says something about Christ that is false, we stand up and say, wait a minute, where would you get that from? Because it's not in my Bible. And where else would you learn about Jesus? So you must be greatly mistaken because you do not know the scriptures, nor the power of God. God answers this question, who is this? And to this day, he's using us to do it. Let's pray.
Our Father, the day of selection, the day when your Lamb is brought into the city before the multitudes, and the story is preserved to this day for us, that we could tell it, that we could speak of your greatness and your beauty, the beauty of your salvation. Well, Father, regardless of what uh, we Christians are facing in our lives in these days, may we major in the major things, the truth as revealed from your word. May we not give up, may we not be discouraged, but may we find courage in your spirit. May we be loving to one another as well as to the enemies with truth. May we love them with truth. And may we do it by faith. If you're here this morning and you've not opened your heart to Christ, maybe you're listening or watching online, you have an opportunity. If you understand that you're not right with Jesus Christ and you need to be, you can sense him compelling you to change your direction of your life to come to Him, to receive mercy and forgiveness for sin. If this is you, then make this prayer with me, and God will receive you. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. I have violated your laws. And I'm asking you to forgive me. You're the only one that can. You're the only one that died for me, for sinners, And that is powerful enough to rise again and remove the guilt. And I give my life to you right here, right now. And I ask that from this day forward, you would be not only the one who saves me from my sin, but also the one who rules over my life from this day forward. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer, may they not hesitate to share it with one of the pastors. If listening online, call into the church and ask for a pastor. And as for those Christians who are struggling with needs, if they've not brought their needs before the church, the pastors, and they would like to do so, may they not hesitate either. As you have told us in your word, your house shall be a house of prayer. All these things, so many more things, we commit to your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.